Good day, fellow explorers. This is what we have for you on today's Impact Everywhere podcast. Oftentimes, people in positions of purchasing power don't live where they work. And so they don't know what's in their backyard of what's being produced and what is possible. A lot of times you'll hear, oh, no one could ever meet my scale. Oh, no one could ever meet my price point. And more often than not, I would say 90% of the time, I absolutely can find a product that meets someone's price point and scale requirements. That's never been a challenge. Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Our guest today is Kim Bryden, and she's the founder of an organization called Curiate, which is trying to shift money back into local communities through the medium of food and beverage. Very often in these large transactions when it comes to food procurement, smaller vendors and businesses get totally left out of the equation. And so Kim created an entire business with three different pillars in order to tackle this problem. The first is a set of courses for food and beverage entrepreneurs that are looking to start a business. She's had over 140 different entrepreneurs graduate from this part of her program. And from there, she identifies opportunities for institutions and big businesses to shift their money back into small businesses that have graduated from her program who are looking to invest in different values, such as diversity and equity, sustainability, all of these different things. And in that program, she has over 375 different vendors that she helps to connect. And finally, the last arm of her business is the consulting one, where she partners up with big city governments and businesses in order to help them invest in more economic development opportunities for everyone. It's a pretty interesting landscape and one that I personally had never heard about. And that's the beauty of this podcast because it gives us the chance to dive into whole new worlds that are not our own. This podcast was recorded live on Clubhouse. So if this is something that you want to be a part of in the future, you can head over to impacteverywhere.club to check out the schedule. With that being said, this is Kim Bryden, and here she is explaining what is wrong with the way procurement is done traditionally in the United States. We have a global, quote unquote, efficient supply chain that devalues labor and cares very little about environmental impact. Two, we are amidst a global pandemic, and when these strike, we have very little understanding of how to scale up manufacturing and processing in our own backyards. And three, I would say most importantly, money is pulled out of our communities and into the hands of a few, creating more power and wealth and balance. And that does not sound like the small business American dream to me and certainly is not democratizing access to opportunity. And so for all of those reasons, that is fundamentally why Curate exists. And we like to say that Curate exists to shift the dollar back into our local communities by building an empowered supply to meet a changing consumer demand. But really, those are three really big bucket areas and a vision that we have to tackle. And resiliency is not created by only having a few silver bullet solutions. It's by having a diverse and varied marketplace. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean by empowered supply? What does that mean to you? Oftentimes, when people are starting small businesses, we're at varying degrees of some people have an uncle who's a lawyer someone else who has a mom who's worked in grocery their whole life. We talk a lot about access to financial capital and entrepreneurship, but not always have those same discussions around social capital. And so if you are not born into a network of wealth or a network of connection, there are all these blind spots that one may have by no fault of anyone's own, but just because you may not have those tools and resources you need in order to survive and thrive in this world. 
So that is what we are talking about when we say empowerment is how do we democratize access to opportunity, whether they are sales channels or merely education and resources. Why did you choose to use food as the vehicle? I'm, I'm guessing there are a lot of different ways that one can empower communities, but you chose food. Can you talk a little bit about that and the potential behind it? I see food as someone's heart on a plate. <laughs> it's this very like tangible representation of culture and community and identity and belonging. And in fact, I thought I was going to be a museum curator. That's what I had a dream to do. And the way my mind works is taking the museum example, I'll think about an exhibit or what is that high level message or storytelling that that exhibit would want to imbue down to the tactical detail of the font on the wall. And what is that whole user experience from messaging strategy down to those tactical details, just how my head works. And I finished university and missed the financial collapse and there weren't lots of jobs in the art industry. And so I pivoted the way in which I was viewing myself and my values to food, which is very much an art form in culinary arts. Hello. And I just see food as not just this representation of oneself, but also a really powerful economic engine. The food system is a massive component to our GDP. And so just seeing what I loved about art and translating it into the food industry is what really latched for me. This idea that you could not just have this art form, but create really strong economic opportunities for people through this system. So I know you led a previous life prior to starting Curiate. And what did you not find there that prompted you to create Curiate in the way that you did? So <laughs> going off of that story about how I wanted to be a museum curator, when I realized that was not going to happen, I was being interviewed to work at a federal government agency. And I took a job with a D.C. government agency in the meantime to start paying off my student loans. And that was the Alcoholic Beverage Regulation Administration. And so I was doing a ton of liquor licenses and imports of alcohol into the district. And I was meeting all of these incredible small business owners who were, I don't love this phrase, but I'm going to use it now, picking themselves up from their bootstraps, so to speak. And I saw them really changing the way D.C. was starting to come back online after this financial collapse. And in understanding how they were starting and running their businesses and the regulations and documentation they had to go through from a government perspective, I became more aware of how to start and run a food business at that time, particularly in the district. And it was from there that I found an opportunity with Whole Foods Market, and I worked with them on marketing and community relations. And when I took that job with Whole Foods, five days later, this federal agency called me and they were like, you're cleared, you can start. And I was like, oh, I'm going to actually go work in the private sector. And they said, oh, like a management consulting firm. And I said, oh, no, a grocery store. So I like giving that story because I think from a very early on, I decided to choose my values over job stability. <laughs> So to answer your question around about way, I think in these other experiences I've had, I got to a certain place with each one of those careers or endeavors where I felt like a values misalignment with myself. And I decided 
there's a challenge or a problem that I think I could be solving in a unique way or possibly better than what I was seeing as the example put before me at that time. Cool. Maybe this is a great opportunity for you to explain the three pillars of Curate. And I'm particularly also interested in having you explain them in the order in which they were created. Ooh, okay. I will try to do that because interestingly, the way Curate started was we embedded with different founder owner operators as they were launching into a new market or launching a new product line. And so technically you could put that under our consult bucket, but consult has now morphed into something different. I'll get back to in a second, but that's how Curate started. And what I realized is that in order for someone to outsource essentially a second brain to help people think through their launch and growth strategies, you had to be at a certain stage of revenue, or as I previously mentioned, you had to be afforded an opportunity or born into a certain network of wealth of friends and family around that you could then have that extra cash to hire an outside consultant. And that, again, didn't really sit right with me. That wasn't truly democratizing access to opportunity. And so at that moment in time is when I started thinking about, okay, where is there a way for us to deploy more resources to a wider variety of folks? And I see my dear friend in the audience, Deborah, and it was at this exact moment in time of having these thoughts that Curate partnered with a workforce development nonprofit called Humanum in East Baltimore to develop this curriculum for idea stage entrepreneurs who were going from that cottage industry, trying to professionalize their products to go to market. And that's what sort of launched this education side of Curate since then. We've developed a second type of curriculum called Curate Courses. Uh-huh, other pillar. Um, curate Courses that are more for growth stage entrepreneurs and helping them through merchandising, marketing, business development strategy, and sales strategy as they're diversifying their revenue streams and going through those tough mental challenges of should I go e-commerce or wholesale or brick and mortar? How to choose between the two? I only have so much time and resources. I don't know where to put my energy. With this partnership with this workforce development nonprofit back in 2015, that's what started this educational curricula. And to date, we've seen over 140 entrepreneurs through both that idea stage and growth stage curriculum in Baltimore, DC, Frederick, Maryland, and now we're in Virginia. And we're in part funded through nonprofits, but also economic development centers. And This leads to the final pillar, so consult courses and now connect. So over time, you can imagine that with us working one-on-one with founders or through our education, folks would email in saying, I'm at the farmer's market, I'm in the local coffee shop, now what do I do? (laughs) Now what happens? And being a grocery expat myself, I see that the grocery industry has a lot of big players playing against each other often, and it can be very pay to play. The amount of cash you need on hand to have inventory on hand to have buy one, get one, BOGO discounts, and just being at the whims of those market forces can be really challenging for a lot of small businesses. So I started looking at the other side of the food supply chain, which is food service, universities, hospitals, convention centers, corporate cafeterias, and 
trying to see where there was a key to unlock that castle. And over time, realized that there are these two key components as to why people in those spaces are not purchasing from small businesses, is that oftentimes people in positions of purchasing power don't live where they work. And so they don't know what's in their backyard of what's being produced and what is possible. A lot of times you'll hear, oh, no one could ever meet my scale. Oh, no one could ever meet my price point. And more often than not, I would say 90% of the time, I absolutely can find a product that meets someone's price point and scale requirements. That's never been a challenge. And so debunking that falsehood is a core component to this. And number two, all of these systems are set up to be purchasing from another large broadline distributor, another multinational company. So you're ordering from one account rep, you're getting one bill, and they make it as easy as possible so that you don't have to go one by one to a bunch of different suppliers. And so we realized that we needed to create the same user experience in order to have a chance at disrupting this system. So Curate Connect is our proprietary procurement platform and operating system where we embed as the local purchasing team at these accounts. And they'll say anything to us from we need kombucha to popcorn to personal cheesecakes, you name it, but we're buying based on the demand needs of that account. So we have over 375 local vendors in our network from whom we're sourcing to meet the demand needs of these larger institutional purchasers. So that is the whole kit and caboodle, consult courses and connect. I love it. So if I just spit that back out to you, what I hear is almost you created your own marketplace, right? So initially, as you were consulting, you realized that in order to have clients to consult with that you wanted to work with, they needed to have the education in order to get there. And so then you built out an education program. And then once you build out that education program, you started to realize that your alumni needed to be connected to the marketplace. So then you're like, oh, I'm just going to build out this marketplace. And then now it's come back full circle so that now your consulting can be even more effective in helping these small businesses scale. Is that correct? You are, yes, right on. Exactly. And I feel like the word ecosystem is perhaps overused these days, but Ultimately, and this is why we say building an empowered supply to meet a change in consumer demand, but like operative words there are supply, demand. So really it's, dare I say it, curating the connections between the supply and demand. We're supply and demand matchmaking here. And you have to have that empowered supply that's ready to fulfill the demand side in order for it to work. Totally. You were right on. Amazing. So This might sound like a really dumb question, but I I just want to hear it from your mouth. What is the benefit to the community to have these small businesses thrive? I have a really beautiful story that perhaps could illuminate one key thing. We have a hospital buyer partner that wanted to change over their point of sale to women-owned businesses, specifically women in BIPOC-owned businesses in the district. And one of the products that we put forward, they decided to source and this particular founder, upon getting the purchase order, she said, my son has been to this hospital many times. And he always said to us, their product is lemonade. He always said to us, if we could have our lemonades at this hospital and Walgreens, his dream would come true. 
And she said that her son has been dealt a lot of lemons in life and he is truly the exemplary of making, you know, lemons into lemonade. And the fact we didn't even know this when we were purchasing the product. You know what I mean? Like we did not even know this beautiful story and to come back full circle for this family through the ability to be purchasing from them month over month their product. It just it means the world to me. It means the world to this young boy and his his dreams. And so that's just one huge component as to why I do what I do. And I think there's hundreds of these types of stories I could tell you based on, again, transitioning people's dollars away from just (laughs) no shame against Big Newtons and Slim Jims, but (laughs) to change people's relationship to the food that they're eating because they know when they make that purchase, they're voting with their dollar and they're voting their values and that every day you're an investor in that small business. And I think people are realizing that means a great deal, especially when we see so many businesses struggling these days. Very good. So let's dive a little deeper on this idea of voting for your values with the dollars. So in this educational program that you create for all these different entrepreneurs, what are the values that you invite them to integrate into their food, like beyond the mechanics of running a business and targeting the right audience demographic and so forth? What does it mean to run a business in alignment with your values? And how does that reflect the needs and wants of an entire community? Yeah, so we always will start with a definition of your values, always, because in the room, there might be two people making cookies. As an example, food is so competitive. You can find your product, not just with another small business in the room, but again, against these other multinational brands, there will be someone probably making your exact same product, undoubtedly. And so the thing that's going to differentiate you, sure, maybe you can subjectively say it's the best tasting it's possible. But the other really core attributes as to what makes you unique and your unique value propositions are the values that you have and how they show up in the operations of what you do, the packaging, your ingredient and sourcing selection. And so we really emphasize that definition of values up front. So they are your guideposts and how you're making all of these growth and operational decisions moving forward. So let's say one of your values was sustainability. As an example, very blatantly, I would say to you, you then serving your food truck provisions in styrofoam would be a big values violation. That would be very obvious. But maybe there's another example where you are a bottled beverage and one of your values is sustainability and you are bottling in glass bottles and now you're trying to pivot to e-commerce. Glass bottles are really heavy to ship. So then what does that mean for your value of sustainability? We don't just take values and that definition of values as a passive remark that you just hang on a wall and look at. (laughs) This isn't like something you just put on your website and you're just like, I believe in this. It should really be operationalized. And so we think that through with each of our businesses because that is going to be your unique competitive advantage. Back to this idea of values and sustainability. When I think of food, I can't help but think of packaging and carbon footprint. And I think of things like the environmental cost of red meat, for example. How deeply involved do you get when it comes to the balance between 
making something local that's culturally relevant without intervening and being prescriptive about this kind of change in the world. You know, to me, it feels like there are so many conflicting priorities when we look at the needs of actually just building a business, which in essence is super hard, but then all these values create additional hurdles in order to get that business up and running. How do you help your businesses through that? I'm going to answer this from two different lenses. One is from the buyers in which we are the local purchasing team, and then also from the small business, the vendor side. So on the buyer side, this is huge in these larger corporate settings. Take straws, for example. I know something you've worked on before, but the whole movement around single-use plastics and our use of straws, that was something that was you as an individual could do to change your consumption habits. But really, the bigger problem is our system and the institutional systems that create the consumption and depletion of resources on this planet. And so while I emphasize the importance to individual consumers to shop your values and to vote with your dollar, really the big systemic change is when we can get these large institutional purchasers to move away from all the commodity goods that are being consumed and purchased and back into the hands of these local producers. Because by buying locally, that is a direct correlation to not having one product shipped across the nation or globe. And two, ultimately, I'd hope that that environmental footprint or cutting down on that transportation is a huge component. But the healthy and freshness of goods being delivered to you on a biweekly basis, two times per week basis, is also better for your end consumer. They're getting more fresh, healthier, freshly prepared meals and goods, as opposed to something sitting in back stock for months on end. So from a larger institutional perspective, sustainability is a core component as to how we help them shift their dollars and shift their impact, because you're right. I think people are waking up to the troubles that our global efficient supply chain has been creating. But It's hard because these multinational systems provide a lot of incentives to keep their products moving off of shelves, monetary incentives, free equipment, etc. And so it's very hard to disrupt the system that is incentivizing people to buy products that are not locally made. So that's that one side. The other side with the small businesses, you are so right. It is super hard (laughs) to start and run a small business. But what we really tell people is with that definition of your core values, you cannot solve for everything at once. You can't. It'll price you out of the market because you're not hitting certain economies of scale yet. Really hone in on that unique value proposition you might have. Perhaps your main why, your main value is that you want to be employee owned. Do that. Have that be the thing that is your value. And your product, your output, maybe it's baked goods, maybe it's brownies, cookies, it doesn't matter. The main focus is that you're saying you're creating an employee owned business. Maybe it's sustainability. You like live and die by the way you source your packaging. And so if you keep adding on all of these different attributes, it is probable that your cost per unit is not going to be tenable against a lot of these other comparable products in the marketplace. So 
If you're a small business listening to me right now or have a question coming up, I would love to unpack this a bit further, but really honing in on those very specific core values you have from the jump and not adding more and more because it will most likely price you out of the game. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. On the same kind of trend of buyer versus supplier, what do you see as exciting trends right now? So on the buyer side, what are trends? Like what are they asking for and starting to move towards? Are they really asking for more employee-owned businesses? Is it more BIPOC? Is it more sustainability? And then on the supplier side, what are you seeing trending right now or actually lacking? Yeah. So on the buying side, think about what's going on in this COVID world we live in. There are no more hot bars. I don't know when we're going to have large shared charcuterie boards anymore. (laughs) Communal dining is not going to be coming back that quickly. So anything that is a pre-packaged experience, again, this is bucking up right against your question on sustainability, right? Do we need things that are more individually packaged from a plastic standpoint? Definitely not. And at this moment in time, the thing that people are desiring the most are individually wrapped and prepared meals, snacks, desserts, because we can't have large open hot bars and salad bars anymore at this moment in time. So that's something I would really emphasize to people is the way in which you're presenting your product, or maybe you were in the food industry as a service, a restaurant, a caterer, a food truck? Is there something that you were producing that was your top seller that you could productize? So maybe you were a Greek restaurant and everyone was like, I love your tzatziki. Is there a way for you to think about packaging your tzatziki now, either in bulk or in retail packaging to sell to grocery stores? So just think about the productization of food items that that has been a big component, the purchasing side Because people don't want to eat the same thing day in and day out. But the ways in which we were consuming things and creating more variety, a build your own bowl, if you will, it's not as feasible at this moment. And I'll also say to the two attributes you were just referencing, absolutely sustainability and diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI initiatives are top of mind for buyers and understanding how through their purchasing, they are uplifting individuals and business owners who didn't typically have that economic opportunity previously. That is absolutely something people are becoming more conscious of. And on the supplier side, something I hope changes in the next couple of years is I see a lot of copycat seems a little bit too Sad. I don't mean that anybody is technically copycatting one another, but it's like every market has their keto protein bar and every market has their bespoke juice tonic brand. And that's that is beautiful. I am so happy for each of those businesses. And sometimes it can just feel a little bit like a replica of one another. And so what I hope starts emerging is instead of this narrative of this is a billion dollar market opportunity and I'm going to seize 5% of it by beating out these other competitors. Stop playing that game. Build something that is unique to you, unique to your values that you truly believe in and want to create a change in this world instead of just trying to beat out the other person who happens to be in your lane. I hope that's what changes. I love it. And to dive a little deeper on the 
buyer side of things, how has the conversation shifted over the last four or five years that you've been doing Curate Connect specifically? Because I would assume that's just the, the amount of consciousness, the desire for transparency, all these are different things that are starting to infuse themselves in the institutional marketplace. And I guess because you're on the inside, I'd love to get your insights on like, how rapidly is this change happening? It does not happen fast. No, definitely not. I've been doing this six years. This is, again, anybody who's listening currently or in the future, this is not a timeline that is comparable to a direct-to-consumer business where you can see your customer acquisition costs immediately based on your social media campaigns that lead to direct-to-purchase on your e-commerce site. That is not the speed at which this happens. Absolutely not. This is years of having conversations with folks who have been operating in one paradigm for a long time. And the food system is set up in a way that keeps us purchasing in a certain way over and over again. Lots of times in our procurement systems, the way in which people win out on certain bids is because a lot of procurement is done on a lowest bidder contract award system. So you would say, I need muffins, tell me your cost of muffins, and you might put in that per unit price. But I have no capability of telling you this muffin was actually made by a woman of color. There's no other place for me to tell you any attribute about that muffin other than its unit cost. And so unfortunately, a lot of systems and purchasing is set up on this lowest bidder system as opposed to values-based procurement. And so that is something I like talking about a great deal and <laughs> changing fundamentally the way our contracts are set up and awarded I think is a massive component to this and a big area of opportunity to be appended. And the other thing, other than the way contracts are awarded, I mentioned this previously, which is then that true cost of food is not actually the real value. We subsidize from a USDA commodities perspective, we subsidize corn, soy, dairy, and so with the corn industry, that then yields to high fructose corn syrup, which makes soda super cheap. And who provides soda? Those big multinational companies have so much cash runway that then they're able to provide incentives in order to keep that system functioning. And so to disrupt that, are you telling me we need to disrupt the way we subsidize commodity crops? Are you saying we need to challenge the true cost of food? Do we need to somehow incentivize these large institutional purchasers to be buying locally in the same incentive structure that these larger multinational companies are incentivizing the purchase of soda? There are so many trigger points in this that need to be addressed in order for that final purchase to occur. And so we're just one component of this larger complex puzzle that keeps us in this same pattern. <laughs> I have a couple of final questions for you before pulling a couple of people up on the stage. Where does your hope come from when you deal with these slow moving systems that almost feel like they're changing so slowly that they don't feel like they're changing? Where does your hope come from and how do you keep it up? Maybe this is going to sound really silly, but I just fundamentally don't want to live in a world where 
It's not hoping for this new system. I really want to be a mom. I'm not currently a mom. And I don't want to look at this future child of mine and say I didn't try. So yeah, that's my honest answer. So beautiful. I love that. And then really quickly before passing it off to Janet and then MCK, what market are you developing right now that you would love to connect with people on? Let's put some serendipity out into the world. Ooh, okay. So right now we're in the mid-Atlantic between DC and Baltimore. We're trying to grow up towards Philly and down towards Richmond to flesh out the full mid-Atlantic area. And then the next geographical location we'll be expanding to is Northwest Arkansas. And so anything within a six hour drive radius from that hub. So again, that would mean Dallas, Shreveport, Memphis, Kansas City, St. Louis, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, that entire geography is super interesting to us because of big ag, big retail, and the possibilities that could emerge for small businesses in creating a more diversified supply chain in those areas. So yeah, put it out there into the universe. Would love to meet anyone in those metro markets. One last question. Why did you choose to work in the Midwest and not go East Coast, West Coast, where all the like unicorn startups are floating around? Yeah, that was very intentional. I think that there's so much opportunity in, I don't know how else to classify it, but like other than second and third tier markets. And it's because in my experience, these areas, their economic development strategy is to attract a large business that is supposedly the job creator of that area. And arguably it is. And that larger institution or business is often very separate from the small business creative class. And so that divide between the two is something that I look for and see that there's opportunity to create more interconnection and economic activity between those two systems because they need each other in order to survive. You can't attract employees and have people stay in an area and live there without a vibrant culture that small businesses bring to a space and place. And small businesses can't survive without consistent purchase orders. Stop just relying on foot traffic from consumers. That is so important and so desired and needed. But we also need our larger businesses to commit their purchasing power to small businesses as well. So I just think Northwest Arkansas, Raleigh-Durham Triangle, Louisville, Cincinnati, like All of these spaces are fascinating to me. And I'm so excited to have more conversations in these metros. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right, Janet, and then MCK, would you like to drop a comment or contribution to this conversation? Thank you. Oh, this is just brilliant. And thank you, Vaughn, for hosting this one little question. You use the word subsidy when you're talking about agriculture. And I've been writing a lot about this sort of thing. And I think the better word is bailout. It's stronger Mm. and it's actually more accurate. I've done a ton of writing on energy and I've been looking at this with Texas because the gas shortage that led to the price hikes as a nation, we have to help Texans, but this is functionally a bailout for the gas companies. So I think changing the way that this is framed, actually it's more accurate and puts more power into what the problem with it is. The second thing, again, this kind of goes back to energy stuff. I learned long ago, actually interviewing Amory Lovins, anything small, modular, flexible, adaptable, and cheap at the unit cost is going to be the right answer no matter what field you go in. And you hit that so squarely that my hat's off. It's just so brilliant. 
And so my mm, question is, as you've built this up and very smartly built it up from the, as you put it, the secondary tertiary markets, some of your vendors are going to have larger appeal, regional appeal. Do you ultimately see going forward how these local networks organically and modularly begin to form regional networks? And have you begun Uh, to develop metrics for what vendors this really works for? Oh, I love that question. Thank you, Janet. Yes. And imagine yourself as a small business owner. You only have so much time and resources. You're in the kitchen making your good. When do you have the time to then knock on a bunch of doors and follow these business development pipelines? It takes years sometimes. And so ultimately, you're absolutely right. These regional economies are so important. So if you start in DC and we curate have expanded into Philly or Richmond, as I was just mentioning, and you are hitting a certain scale in DC and are ready to make that jump two hours north to Philly, what if we could be that launch pad for you? Because we already have certain accounts and connections there. And similarly with Philly entrepreneurs who might want to expand down to DC or Richmond. Absolutely. And I think that is the power of creating these decentralized, but yet also centralized systems. Brilliant. Thank you. And I know there are a lot of other questions, so I'm going to, you can send me back if you'd like. Thank you, Janet. MCK, please hop in. Hey, thanks, Vaughn. That was an awesome question, Janet. And Kim, I think your sharing today has been super inspiring. One of the things I also loved was calling yourself a grocery expat and just thinking about being in between <laughs> these different kinds of worlds, how that uh-huh. you know, has given you this really great perspective to think about how to create change. So I was thinking, and this picks up what just came up with Janet, you know, this idea of this decentralized and centralized system. Let's say that somebody big said, hey, Kim, you're doing an awesome job at this grassroots local level. We'd like you to take over the whole system of America. What would be your first couple of steps and what would you want that vision to look like? Ooh, love this dream big question. Thank you for asking it. It would definitely depend on what that larger system is. I'm just going to use like food service management companies at large as an example. So if you have many different accounts across different industries, Typically, there's healthcare, hospitality, corporate settings, us understanding where we fit into your portfolio. And then each one of those accounts that that food service management company has, they have a general manager that runs that account. So we would then also have a curator alongside those account managers in order to, one, handle that local finding, vetting, and sourcing for that particular account doing exactly what we do now with our operating system to handle all of that purchasing. And then most importantly, what I have not mentioned yet is that we issue impact assessment report cards to our buyers at the end of each year saying how that money is spent and with whom, percentage to women, percentage to BIPOC producers, et cetera. And so it would be our responsibility in this org chart to be handling both, again, that vetting and sourcing the actual purchasing, but then also the reporting aspects to then funnel that back up to the client and overall that larger entity that would have been supporting or acquiring us or what have you. (laughs) And that impact assessment report card, could you tell us a little bit more about that and how you went through designing that and what it looks like now? So it's something we provide internally to our buyer partners and they can share it and use it how they see fit. We have our certain things that we want to track no matter what, like percentage of money spent, 
towards women-owned businesses, BIPOC. We also look at dietary trends that are emerging, vegan, keto, gluten-free, things like that. But then each buyer oftentimes has additional metrics that they would like to keep tabs on. So as an example, in D.C., D.C. is split into eight wards. And so oftentimes buyers in D.C. will want to know the percentage of money spent to businesses producing out of certain wards in D.C., So we can be flexible on what we're tracking based on that buyer partner as well. I love this idea of the report card, by the way, Kim. I feel like it's one of Greenpeace's strategies where in order to make companies reform their industries, they create these report cards because nobody wants to be last on a Greenpeace report card. So maybe you're onto something here. So I find it really interesting. Connor, Mohammed, Cheryl, you're up next. Thank you. Hey, Connor here from Austin, Texas. Kim, I've really enjoyed listening to you speak. I'm I'm very inspired by everything that your organization is doing. My question today is, you were speaking a lot about the more B2B aspect of everything you're doing and thinking about that report card that was just brought up. How is your organization, and if not, do you know of other organizations that are working to get that information out to the consumer? How are you making this transparent to the consumer that is buying all this? Great question. Yeah. As someone who has been a B2C or D2C marketer her life prior to Curate, I always am thinking about this because ultimately I've created a business that is B2B to C. I need to understand what's going on in the C world in order to best reflect the strategies to my B2B clients and customers. And again, it is not something I feel like we've optimized for or done a remarkable job at, but something I am thinking about all of the time because Ultimately, people change their behaviors based on if they feel like they're losing customers. (laughs) And so how to rally customers and constituents around a movement is something I think about a great deal. The best example I can give, and you might need to do some Googling on this because I don't know if I'm going to remember the exact name off the top of my head, but there's a student network, maybe it's called the Real Food Network, that are student-led groups on college campuses that hold their food service management companies accountable for how they're purchasing. So that would be maybe my best example of, again, a consumer base or constituent base that is enforcing or holding accountable this larger system. Awesome. Thank you. Maybe to piggyback on Connor's question, if someone discovers one person inside of your network, can they then find brands that are espousing the similar values? Is there any kind of network effect built into your current programs? Yeah, that happens all the time with our buyers. They'll be purchasing XYZ products from us and they'll be like, this is moving really well because the founder is someone that our staff is really resonating with. And we feel like these attributes of this product are the reasons why this is moving. Do you have anything like that? So that happens very frequently. But I do think that there's that inverse potential where what if it wasn't as a response to something we're already doing, but a proactive, we want this larger business, like we're demanding it of you, please change your behavior. That opposite effect, I think, is equally and sometimes maybe not even probably even more powerful. And I would love to engage with that further. Time and resources as a small business, am I right? 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Cheryl, you've been up here for a while. Would you like to hop in? Hi, Kim. And I'm curious if your work makes you feel more hopeful about the future of our country in terms of the growing divides between people who have different political views and socioeconomic status and refugees and immigrants. And maybe you could share a story of your witnessing the way that these food systems are able to bring people together and build bridges where they live. Yeah, that's a great question. I have dear friends who are a multi-generational farming family, cattle, pigs, chickens, all sorts of meat processing in rural Texas. And whenever I go to visit them, we could not, from every aspect of maybe stereotyping me and them, are very different and believe such different things in many different ways. But when I'm with them and I'm talking about their farming operation and their processing of meat and bringing it to market, we could not be more in alignment. The way that they treat their animals, the way that they care about the soil quality and the way in which the end of life of that animal is respected and treated. Like there are so many aspects that we're just often using lots of big words and jargon. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on, there's so many comparable values alignment. And this, like a whole other story I'll just bring up right now. It's a gentleman that went through one of our educational curriculums who didn't have any formal schooling. And he made his way in the world through running different enterprises that were non-bankable. And we were talking about how he wanted to start a food business, particularly in urban farming. And I said, look, when you were running your other businesses, did you go into a new neighborhood and ask people if they wanted to try X product? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's market research. And then I was like, did you have a bunch of products on hand and you needed to like test it to see if it was still good? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, that's quality assurance. And so I just was changing the words, but they were all the same actions. And I think that's when it's really beautiful to just have conversations with people as like real people and not a white papers or what have you, because ultimately everyone's just trying to have enough cash to provide for their loved ones and their families. And they're trying really hard and don't want you to talk at them. They want to be like talk with and come up with like co-creative solutions together. That's just something that I've observed. Something so valuable about food in that it's something that we do three times a day, or we try to, hopefully most of us do three times a day. And I'm it's snacking like, all day. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But it's a constant reminder, especially if you're creating a business that is around your values, then it's like a reminder three times a day of whether or not you're in alignment with whatever it is you care about. So I think there's something really powerful there about that. Kim, do you have any final words of wisdom? If people want to follow you, share, where should they go? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for everyone who stayed around for this whole conversation. I'm so honored that you spent your time here this afternoon. So thank you. You can find us at curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E dot C-O. And Curate Co is, is where you can find us on Instagram as well. And I'm at Kim Bryden, K-I-M-B-R-Y-D-E-N on Instagram and Twitter and here on Clubhouse. So 
would love to connect with you in any of those spaces. And I look forward to more of these thought-provoking conversations. One of my personal core values is curiosity and living deeply and boldly into life's questions. So thank you for having me and for exploring these really important systemic topics. Alrighty, folks. So there you have it. That was Kim Bryden. If you know anybody that is in the food and beverage industry that could use any help, I would highly recommend you go and reach out to her. Of course, you can also listen to her podcast at The Tidbit in case you're curious to learn a little bit more about her world. As always, if you're looking for any links or show notes, you can head over to impacteverywhere.club for more information. And if you want to catch these conversations live and participate in them, make sure to follow us on Clubhouse at the Impact Everywhere Club. And with that being said, folks, I hope you have a wonderful week. Stay positive, stay inspired, because impact is everywhere.